forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like this podcast to continue to exist, you can become a supporter at patreon.com slash public intellectual. For a small donation a month, you'll get access to bonus episodes like the one that we've released this week, a very long tirade by myself and book critic, writer, editor, friend, and recurring guest B.D. McClay that we went on about the new literature and TV shows of and about and by women. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and you'll get access to all the bonus episodes immediately. How do we divorce beauty from capitalism? I've been thinking about this since we talked to Kira Kremen about man-made women, which explores hegemonic masculinity and argues for men to embrace beauty and pleasure and frivolity and femininity as a radical act. But that runs smack into the second wave feminist critique of beauty as unfair standards that oppress women through unrealistic body standards, as well as anti-capitalist activist critiques of the fashion industry's sweatshops and contributions to landfills as trends arrive and then quickly die. And then there is the whole status thing, where fashion and beauty and self-presentation gets tied up not with expression and pleasure and fun, but with striving and ambition. So how do we think about this? Can beauty and expression ever come to us in a pure way? Or should we toss all of it over, go back to the braless, moisturizer-free days of second-wave feminism? But I do believe in Justin Vivian Bond's Glamour is Resistance, and I remember how it was queer culture and drag artists and trans artists who dragged me out of my shaved head, men's cardigans, and army boot phase, and taught me how to recapture the pleasure of dressing. Heather Widow's new book, Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal, is a useful contribution to this conversation that is always going on in my head. Also in the wider cultural conversation, not just my internal one. The pressure to conform to very limited beauty standards has, as Widow explains, an ethical side. If you don't use this 12-step skincare regimen or get your yoga body toned or find your perfect selfie angles, then you are letting yourself down and you should be ashamed. You are letting yourself go. The line for what is normal just keeps moving until we are all now plucking and waxing and toning and never eating another carbohydrate and manicuring and injecting poisons into our faces and never really asking ourselves why or if we are allowed not to do these things. Widows is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Birmingham, and she was lovely enough to hop on the phone with me to discuss her new book. So what does it do to frame this conversation around ethics rather than simply talking about beauty in a way of uh, talking about the sort of massive pressure from society to conform to beauty standards? Like, how does that help us move the conversation forward? 
Okay, thank you. So I think it's the um, a piece of the puzzle that has been missed in the other debates. And I think it's crucial for understanding why it matters so much to people and why, um, why I think strategies such as just telling people to resist, uh, not only will they never work, but they're counterproductive and divisive. Uh, um, and I think only if you can see the ethical element of what's going on can you understand that. So, you know, my claim that beauty is an ethical ideal or is becoming so and for very many people already is, is a claim about how we value beauty. Um, beauty is what we talk about, think about, spend our hard-earned cash on. And as this it becomes very serious stuff, so we also often talk about beauty practices as if beautifying is, is just some kind of trivial afterthought, whereas actually for very many people it's at the heart of who they are and they think that they are successful in general if they succeed in beauty. Um, and likewise, when you fail, when you let yourself go, this is, is a, a quite profound failure, a failure of the self. Um, and we feel shame and disgust, these very moral emotions. And I think only when we add the, the moral aspect, the ethical aspect, can we see just how powerful an ideal is. And only if we see that can we then um, recognize why some responses are just doomed to failure. Yeah, the language of beauty in this um, this way of needing to control oneself, to have a sort of... Um uh, willpower over one's body, one's face, um, and then the idea of, you know, it, I, I think it is sort of difficult to, more difficult to understand it as, as a sort of ethics thing because it's it's always sort of couched in this language of, you know, letting yourself down. So it's not like you're letting the world down, it's just letting yourself down, which seems like even more difficult to um to resist or even understand um, why we take this burden on for ourselves, right? Right. So, I mean, I mean, you're right that, that a lot of it's very individual language, like you're worth it, you owe it to yourself. But, I mean, that's, um, that's a language that's used very much um, in a Western context. There are very many communal languages used in other contexts about, you know, that it's important to... Um, beautify so that you don't let your family down. So my, my claim would be that we use different narratives um, in different culturally specific contexts. But what we always do is, um, is beauty is mattering more in all of those contexts. So for instance, if you look at Iran, which um, is, is one of the many cities that claims to be the, the, the um, cosmetic surgery capital of the world, others being um, yeah, um, Beirut and bits of Brazil and all kinds, but you know, there's, there are those bandages are worn with pride um, because it's care for the self is also respect for others. So um, it, 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 seems, it seems to me that um, in, the, in, in very individualized places, that's the language that's being used. I'm doing it for me, it's for myself. And in other places, the culturally acceptable language is being used. And you, know, you can see this with all kinds of practices. So um, Deborah Gimling, the sociologist, did a beautiful book comparing um, British and American women's um, narratives about cosmetic surgery. And the narratives are completely different and in ways that make sense. If you think in the UK, we have a very publicly funded um, health system. So people talked about needing cosmetic surgery and that, you know, they were only doing this, you know, to be normal. You know, whereas in, in the US, you get a very different um, narrative about, you know, deserving it and having saved up for it and self-improvement. And, yeah, and I think the British narrative is now perhaps changing. But, you know, these are um, 
these narratives, I think, change in order to allow the beautifying or the normalizing that is required. Yeah, the word normal is so is so um, worrying in this context, the idea that if you have a slight variation on these very strict standards, and I think, you know, um, especially in Western society, there's this idea that beauty standards are actually somehow relaxing because of body positivity movements and so on, but really they do seem to be narrowing. I mean, I I argue that they are much narrower, that what you need to do to be normal rises all the time and is more demanding. And I think that a lot of the kind of claims to diversity and body positivity, they are around one access of. So I talk of this, there's four features I highlight of the global beauty ideal, thinness, firmness, smoothness and youth. And I think when you look at a lot of those movements, very rarely are they... um, addressing more than one aspect. So you'll get kind of a colour of cosmopolitan with with very different women in terms of of race and size, but they all um, conform to that um, global norm of thinness, firmness, smoothness and use. So, and it's just important to think of that as a range. So it's not one blueprint. It's not like, you know, the heroin chic of the 80s or or only that. There's quite a large range of thinness, but... um, but there's always thinness in some body parts. So the most obvious example is the waist. So you can be incredibly curvy in having very large breasts, very large bum, but you have a very thin waist. So it's never the case that um, a huge pockmarked, saggy, muffin-topped belly would be a feature of the beauty ideal. But the diversity kind of hides the fact that overall the range is getting narrower. So body hair is, is the one example I use about the narrowing of normal. So body hair removal, to me, is shifting from a practice that we think of as a beauty practice where it's perfectly acceptable to have visible body hair, it's just a fashion choice, to a practice that we're reclassifying as a health or hygiene practice, so something like teeth cleaning or hair brushing. And once we redefine it, once it shifts, um, then it stops being something that we can just choose not to do and it becomes something that is necessary just to meet minimal standards, just to be good enough, just to be normal. And I think we're at that moment with body hair removal. So people now talk about it being abnormal, being disgusting, that they'd be ashamed of themselves. And yet, of course, that's kind of 180 degrees. It's a double think. You know, we, our bodies grow hair. It's the ultimate in natural and yet we start to see it as unnatural. And you can see the same thing with other things like, you know, white teeth being a good example. Uh, In some places, Botox is already normal. So anything that you have to do just not to be ashamed of yourself, just to make minimal standards, that's a rising of normal. And the kind of diversity of colors and shapes is actually within quite a prescribed range. And I think it's it's a, a way, one of the reasons that it's so hard to see and track that rising of normal. And the health aspect of it is so um, pervasive and that language has sort of taken over a lot of the beauty standards. So um, especially, you know, I I remember reading a couple of years ago for the first time, um, sort of uh, pubic hair removal being a part of like a healthy um, female regimen 
whereas like every gynecologist is like maybe don't wax because it's actually can cause infection and all these other things um but it just became sort of normalized under under health but in in the same way of like you know firmness and and tone is is a health issue and that's harder to argue against um because in our culture health is 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 so much of like a uh, almost a religious pursuit yeah so i'm absolutely fascinated by the relationship between beauty and health because um i think we often use health as you say as a kind of trump card so i'm justifying it on health grounds but the body that is emerging the very modified body is not a healthy body now as you say pubic hair removal um isn't actually for health reasons in fact it's it, it does the opposite. Um, firmness, you see, I'm not sure that that is as hard to argue against So because that very, um, that very firm body is not necessarily a healthy body. Um, again, um, but the language around it, it's like health justifies it. It becomes, it, you know, it allows you to do body work because um, your health is important. But again, I, I think we're at this very interesting moment where it's not the case that people will let their concern for their health um, stop them doing things for beauty reasons. In fact, very often the opposite. So over-exercising is, is one of the things that we see a lot, and then particularly when it comes to men and um, body work, you know, so, so over-exercising, and then with it, of course, the use of steroids, etc. Right, this that, That's not for a healthy body. That's for the body beautiful. And so many of the procedures that we're willing to do can be very risky, and we do it not for health reasons. And, and that's true, of, obviously, at the high end. You know, so I have a passage in my book about just how worrying buttock implants are, um, whereas other surgery is, is quite routine. But also at the very low end, like tanning um, and skin lightening are both very risky. And n- neither of them are done for health reasons. So I think some, there are some areas where health is kind of used as a legitimating narrative to allow you to engage in things that are really not for health, but are for attaining this this body beautiful. And again, it depends on context. In some places, you're allowed to say it. In some cases, health gives you a bit of a cover. And it's interesting how um, internalized these standards have become in that it's hard to think around them or or to criticize them um, in a in an understanding of, of how you're participating in it. I mean, so it was, there was this article that went viral um, over the spring, and all it was was a kind of skeptical approach to the really sort of fetishizing of of skincare. Now there's like this South Korean regimen. It takes like 12 to 17 products. It takes, you know, almost an hour a day to to participate in it. And um, the article was like, no one knows anything about skin. these acids that people are using very commonly are burning people and people on social media really freaked out about this and, and were, you know, saying, you know, how dare you um, criticize me? You know, I need this. It's, it works for me. Um, so it, it does have this weird inability to, for people to understand um, uh, what it is that they're, that they're doing and why, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think we are so um, bound up with the practices that we do and don't do. So in the book, I map, there's a, there's a chapter 
um, where I kind of look at what what is routine, what is occasional, and what is exceptional, and I, I use a number of possible criteria. So, you know, whether it's risky, how often you have to do it, um, uh, how much time it takes, all the, all these possible criteria, and then I argue that. It, it turns out none of them hold, right? There is nothing that is routine. Um, for some for some women who never, you know, just wash their face with soap, everything more is, is exceptional. And for other women at the other end who do, you know, um, routine skincare um, uh, of great proportion, use very many products on their faces, that, that's, that's not um, excessive, that's minimal. That's what they do to be, just to be normal. So the only criteria that holds the cross is basically what you do or what you and your um, peers do and what you think is, is, is okay and necessary to do so when when you criticise um, particular practices you people then feel that they are, they are criticised and this is one of the reasons that I think we should stop criticising individuals for what they do or don't do in the beauty sense because all it does is it just sends us off into a very distracting, it sounds like exactly what this article did, this kind of um, you know, oh, I, I can do this, this is for me, I'm doing it for me, all this kind of um, very familiar rhetoric. You know, we know that that doesn't work. Like we know that, you know, those people who um, are in a community where they don't beautify very much think it's crazy that these other people beautify so much. And those who are in the beautifying community, they just look at these other women and think, oh, my goodness, you know, that that's not a way to go out in the world. So none of these are helpful, whereas, in fact, we should just look across the piece and go, right, this really matters now. Uh, we need to start taking it really seriously, and let's start taking it seriously by recognising that for very many people it does function in this way. So we don't just tell them to stop because A, it doesn't work, and B, it's actually unethical because it's failing to recognise the nature of the ideal or the power it has over people. Yeah, I mean, you talk um, in the book a lot about um, the word normal, how something becomes um, right. just sort of unquestioned. Um, so in, in this sort of framework of um, uh, what's normal and, what, and what's exceptional, like uh, how does it seem to be escalating? And also, can you, I guess, just explain in your sort of like philosophical um, use of the word normal um, to somebody who hasn't read your book, but. Um, yeah. Okay. So thank you. Right. That's, so normal, I think, is a crucial word in this because it's, you know, normal is anything but normal. So normal is never something um, objective. So it's never something like, you know, a normal breast is never the mean average breast or, um, you know, or a parameters within which most women's breasts fall. You know, very rarely um, is that what the word means. So um when I started working on this project quite a lot of years ago now, I went looking for pictures of unmodified breasts to use when I was giving talks. And it was very hard to find pictures of breasts without implants. Um, in fact, I ended up using some from um, breast cancer awareness campaigns about self-checking. Um, so what happens then is you get you compare yourself to the images that you see. Right? So it's not surprising then that most young women think that their breasts are not normal, by which they don't mean anything about falling in the average parameters. What they mean is their breasts are not the kind of breasts that they see everywhere and think are the kind of breasts that they should have. So normal starts functioning um, very much as um, a way to a placeholder for um, something that 
is very subjective about um, what the ideal is. And then this gradually shifts. So obviously the more that one, the more people that engage, then the higher the bar is. And so what is normal changes. So there's, a, there's um, I think I used it in the book, I'm not sure if I used it in the book or not, but um, nonetheless, I remember talking to a plastic surgeon who was telling me about the not, uh, sticky out ears and what was normal in terms of at what point would he operate on the National Health Service, so publicly funded, um, to remove the sticky outness of the ear. So bearing in mind, there's no health functioning at all about sticky out ears. It doesn't matter whether your ears stick out at 90 degrees or, or not. It makes no difference to your health functioning. And yet on the public health service, we would pin back sticky out ears that were abnormal. So I was just like, well, what, what, what would normal be then? Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a percentage? Or it's like, well, no, it's quite obvious what's normal or not. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> right, the opposite is true. And once you've pinned back all the ones that stick out a really long way, then those that didn't look so sticky out before suddenly start looking sticky out, and then you end up with this kind of ever ratcheting up notion of what is normal. Yeah, that's. And, <laughs> Right, and we see all, all with all, um, you know. So a journalist was asking me about, well, what, how, how can all these young girls be having these these big lips? Don't they look how abnormal? But they know how abnormal they look, and it's like no, because you know it becomes you very quickly normalise, and then and then once it is normal, you can't see it. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of thinking about this and you know watching a documentary about. Um, girls and women undergoing labiaplasty because mm. um, the only time they see women's genitals is during pornography, right? So right. any variation from that becomes uh, um, disgusting, really. I mean, and then it's just real shame and they feel like they can't be intimate with a man because what is he going to think about, <laughs> about my labia? Right. Yeah. Yes. Um Yes, lots of it, that, the rising request for labiaplasty is incredible. And you know, so some people do track it to porn. Other people track it to, to um, just the kind of this kind of disgust with hair again. And then that, so once you've removed your hair, labia obviously look more pronounced than if you have hair. Um, in fact, one surgeon that I was talking to um, said that a young woman under 13 had been brought to her by her mother and her mother said, oh, but she's not normal. Oh. And the surgeon said to her, well, what do you mean she's not normal? How, what, what, what does that mean? She said, oh, she doesn't look like I do. It's just uh. The, uh. The, the, the power of the normal. And, you know, and even, even when it comes to um, how surgeons are taught, it turns out that they have very stylized graphs of what ladies look like, which is one surgeon pointed out to me. I've never seen a woman that looks like that, but we don't have... You know, we don't have that range of diverse bodies. Our bodies, the images that we see are all very ideal or we're comparing against a very narrow set. Because we, we see naked bodies all the time, but only certain types of naked bodies. So you talk about how um, these sort of outside markers have replaced um things like character as the thing that we sort of emphasize on improving. And right. part of that seems to be because we're living in, in such a much more visual culture um, and such so much of a more sort of, um, we have such a, a bigger ability to 
choose how we present ourselves through Instagram and social media and, and, right. and Facebook. Um, the, the sort of perfectly angled selfie and, and, and so on. <laughs> um, but um, how, how do we sort of think about um, other sort of factors that have created the situation rather than, you know, right. rather than just sort of being like, well, the internet is evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. So I think, I mean, so I talk about a kind of perfect storm of drivers. So one is the visual and virtual culture that you can, you have to be camera ready all the time. You can always be snapped. So, you, you know, it's not good enough just to dress up for weddings and birthdays and special occasions because that's the only time people are going to take pictures of you. So that, that is a key. Selfie culture is a key um, factor. But um, other drivers are also very obvious, like um, the technological imperative that because we can do more, we think that we should do more. And that very that helps with this ratcheting up, this normalising, that feeds directly into that. So the example I always use with my students is Elizabeth I. Right, so we know that Elizabeth I was incredibly invested in her looks, and particularly when they are fading looks. Um, but there wasn't a lot she could do to address that. So she could make high necklines and big ruffs fashionable to hide her ageing neck and her wrinkly turkey neck and she could also you know put white lead on her face and makeup but she couldn't do that that was it really she couldn't do all the things that we can do so the technological imperative i think is is, is a key um element of it uh, and then we have this kind of um global consumer culture where we display our kind of consumption our status and identity on our bodies so we literally kind of write ourselves on our bodies. So obviously that can only happen in a, in a, in a visual culture where it's where you communicate so much by how you look. But it's also um, it is also about consumption and a more transient culture where um, we often don't get past the first impressions because relationships are more transient and we have very many more of them. So instead of having those deeper relationships, which you get past first impressions, less often does that happen. And then, of course, the bit that I bring to the table, I think, is the, is the ethical nature of the idea. Understanding that people think that it's not just about showing who they are, but it actually is themselves, right? We have, we have missed this, this element when this tipped from beauty being one, off your wealth or doing something to something that you valued most um so this kind of you know believing that succeeding in beauty will is success in general so in philosophical language that it will give us the good of the good life that it, that it will make us happy it, it will give us a, a good life it will give us employment it will give us relationship success and everything else will go well if only I can look right. So this lovely quote that I put in the book um, from a psychological study, and it was a, a 16-year-old, and I might get it slightly wrong, but it's something along the lines of, oh, gosh, if only I was thin enough, then, you know, my grades would come up. I'd get a boyfriend. I'd have a great social life. Everything would come together. Something like that. And, you know, but that, that notion that just being thin, then the whole life will follow. And that's part of, a, of, a, of really understanding that that message is absolutely everywhere. Um, and, we, and we believe it. Right? We wouldn't, it wouldn't be our New Year's resolutions to be thinner if we didn't think that that was going to change ourselves and therefore change our lives. This has become something that we routinely believe without stepping back and going, well, we know that that's not true, right? Your grades will not come up because you're thinner. Um, you know, um, in fact, they may go down if you spend too much time on beauty. 
Uh, perhaps you will be more attractive, but you won't automatically get a boyfriend or have a great social life because you say, no, right, we know that that's not true. And in fact, sexual attractiveness and beauty, I, I separate out uh, quite clearly in the book. I think they're doing, in doing more different things than they've done before. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of that pre- prevalence of the view that only if only I could um, look right, then everything else would be right, is a really ubiquitous message of our culture and one that we don't unpack and we must unpack it. Yeah, because you, you even say in your book that, you know, there are these studies that are sort of put forth every once in a while about how beautiful people are, you know, they get more callbacks for job interviews and, and so on. Um, but that the actual sort of tangible benefits of beauty are much less than we than we assume or believe that it it, it, it might sort of open these sort of short term possibilities and opportunities. But in the long haul, the, it, it doesn't actually sort of improve, <laughs> improve a person's existence as much as we yeah. assume that it does. Absolutely. So that the, the, the jury is still out on exactly how much beauty delivers. Um, it certainly delivers something, but nothing like the, the extent um, of which the ideal promises. Right? It certainly does not make you happy, as it were. And in fact, as body image anxiety increases, and, and I talk about us having an actual global epidemic of body image anxiety, then all of us, no matter what we look like, increasingly are dissatisfied and body image anxiety has devastating consequences, which are very well documented. And it's now the case that we think that quite extreme worries about our bodies are normal. Right? We've normalized the anxiety that we feel. So we think there's something slightly odd about a woman who is not dissatisfied with her, her body. So we've got to this point at which it's so normal to think badly of yourself that it, it, it's just not even recognized as body image anxiety. And yet we know that it stops young women doing all kinds of things. It stops them speaking up in class. It stops them doing exercise. It stops them going places where they might um, have photographs taken. And it has a devastating uh, cumulative effect on mental health. And we know all this. And yet we still don't quite address the harms of valuing beauty in this way. So you're absolutely, it's absolutely the case that beauty delivers something but on balance, looking across the studies, it's not that much. It's something, but it's not that much. And it's certainly not the everything that the ideal promises. And it's increasingly a problem for men as well. Um, that the sort of body anxiety and I think maybe more so from the sort of health uh, angle of it of um the strong body than you know the the sort of self-presentation of you know hair and makeup obviously um but yeah like it, it does seem to be spreading the to men as well i, th- I think men are doing body work so they, they may have um, largely skipped the second shift of housework but they are doing the third <laughs> shift of body work <laughs> and that and that sort of you know, that tracks very differently to those old arguments about gender exploitation. And again, coming back to the health thing, again, I think health being used here um, as a way of disguising the striving for the perfect body because that muscle-bound, strong body is very rarely a healthy body. Right? Often you need help to get that body. Um, so that's either health in over-exercising or it's health in um, extreme diets or use of hormones or other forms of surgery, not healthy. Um, 
And we also see the rise of, like, so male grooming products are one of the biggest expanding markets. So it's no longer the case that boyfriends steal girlfriends' moisturisers. They're happy to buy it for themselves. Um, and again, in the, in the going back to, to hairlessness, hairlessness is now, um, for very many men, something that they do routinely too. So the sack back and crack being a very um, popular form of procedure. Uh, so it is absolutely the case, I think, on that one axis that the inequality is eroding. Very many men are, are doing body work. I think it, there's lots of differences still. I don't think there's a global ideal for men. And, um, you know, I think there's still, it's still not got that kind of single thing. So it doesn't not, it's not normalizing yet in quite that way. Um, but in terms of just thinking that they're judged on their bodies, the growth of body image anxiety amongst young men is quite startling. The growth of eating disorders amongst young men um, in one study that is estimated to be around a third of young men's e of eating disorders are young men. And we wouldn't have anticipated that 20 years ago. In fact, in, the, in Naomi Wolf's Beauty Myth, so that was published in 1990, there's this lovely bit where she writes about um, how, you know, if we imagined the same thing happening to men, you know, there'd be adverts for, you know, things like, you know, smooth or reshaped or, or something, I can't remember exactly what, but something to do with how you change the penis. And of course, we have those all the time now. So, yeah, that that has just completely normalized. And you read that sentence and it strikes you suddenly as, as wow, look how how much we've shifted in that, that 30 years, um, where that's not an extreme example that everybody's laughing at. It's a completely normal example. Um, you, so you um, write about one of my favorite sort of uh, writers at the moment, uh, Angela McRobbie, um, but her book, Be Creative, um, sort of talked about the, the emphasis on branding in, in as a response to sort of financial and employment precarity, right? Uh, so the anxiety of, um, of, uh, the instability of the job market, the instability of creative pursuits and, and small businesses right. and how we're we're all sort of on our own creates this emphasis on on creating a perfect brand. Um, and the sort of, sort of I think the phrase she uses is the corrosion of character that results of always needing to be sort of on and in job interview mode. Um, so what is the, it, it seems like, you know, when we talk about these things as being self-care, um, we talk about, uh, you know, the, the beauty masks and the, and the, the regimen and everything as being a sort of soothing self-care thing, but really it does seem to just actually create this, um, and I think the, the phrase still holds like a corrosion of character, um, and, a, and a, and a deeper anxiety. Um, so people who sort of fall into these sort of beauty standards, I mean, you, you talk about the, the sort of, um, that there's no, uh, end result that it, it's a pursuit it's not something that we um, ever achieve so can you talk a little bit about that right. about yeah yeah no so um no I I, I I really enjoy her work too um, and, and it's really it's been really useful to me so I guess again the bit that, miss, that miss, missing for me is, is again that the ethical nature that makes that pursuit far more understandable so all ethical ideals are unattainable in the sense that what matters is that you keep striving for them so you know if you think about something like truthfulness like you never have perfect truthfulness 
and that's why we have things like little white lies and what would perfect truthfulness be anyway but you know the striving for being more truthful um, or more honest um, and honesty about perfection always being beyond so that's a kind of a, a very um, inherent feature in ethical ideals um, so the good the perfect is always um, something that we are seeking to attain um, and yet in beauty, of course, that, that remains true, even though, of course, it gets harder because we all ultimately, you know, we all, as I say in the book, sag, wrinkle and die. Um, hence the, the, the kind of extreme um, anxiety that is created around it. So the self-care narrative is really interested. And I think that we need to recognize the very mixed nature of beauty because some of those claims are true. Um, and that's one of the reasons that it is so difficult to um, critique and dismiss because we know that it's not true to say that there is nothing pleasurable about any beauty practice. Very few people find there is nothing pleasurable about any beauty practice. And that's partly because of the status that beauty has in our culture. So even if you don't perhaps per se enjoy beautifying, we've now got to the point where so much of our social life is built around those kind of practices, so spa days, for instance, or even something that you might think is inherently not pleasurable, like, you know, going to slimming clubs and having the public humiliation of your weigh-in. These things have now become, like, you, you go with your friends. It may be the only time of the week that you can go out and get away from the kids, and uh, that will be something that will be justified. Again, coming back to what you said earlier about health, health justifies a lot of this. It's a, it's a, a language, but yet that might be a, a socialising that you do and that you don't feel guilty about because it's for health and beauty purposes. It, it's working on yourself. So it's a really fascinating area. The other, the other sense in which, right? So there's so much harmful about over beautifying. Well, you know, we, we, it, the epidemic of body image anxiety, I think, really is devastating, and the rising of normal and this need. For the, to have this ever more modified body, I think these are terribly harmful consequences. But I think it's just as false to say there's nothing positive about beauty as to say there's nothing harmful about it. So I focus on a few of the, bring out a few of the positive things. So some is that there is a sense in which um, some beautifying can be empowering. It's also the case that we have so embedded beauty into our culture that often the only adult-to-adult non-sexual non-medical touch is the beauty touch so you know if you think about for instance i use this example in the book you know if you think about the person in the care home who um who's who who may it may be that their only non-medical touch adult to adult touch is, is when they get their hair washed and their head massaged for instance right so that kind of you know that the beauty touch is a legitimated loving touch now of course we could do it in a different way we could legitimate all kinds of other touching processes but we haven't so there's a way in which that 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 is important um so you know philosophy has been very bad at recognizing our embodied nature and that bodies matter and i do think they matter um, and i think philosophy has often celebrated the mind at the expense of the body the kind of classic ghosts in the machine and, and my view is, is that both of those extremes are wrong beauty is not all harmful but nor is it this completely creative, unimportant practice. It's really serious stuff with incredibly harmful consequences. And if the trajectory keeps going the way we're going, those consequences are going to get worse. But we can't just deny um, all the pleasures of beauty. Um, and some of them are communal pleasures. Some of them are um, the empowering pleasures. And as we live in a, a, in a world where 
beauty embeds more and becomes an ethical ideal, then there are also those kind of pleasures about feeling virtuous. Then this is why I'm so keen that we name it, because if we don't, if we don't name it, we can't understand it. So how could it ever be um, pleasurable to go under the knife for an operation you don't need, sit through six months of, um, uh, sorry, six weeks of recuperation? etc etc and that, that's what lies behind how we govern these practices we think people won't do it um, because why would you do that and that's misunderstanding that it might be the case that almost no matter what is asked if we've already invested in that self under the beauty ideal we're working towards our perfect me that imagined self then it might feel good to do and feel virtuous almost no matter how from a different perspective where you haven't bought those claims it seems crazy yeah the 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 sort of language of work is also interesting in the in the sense of um you know having to work on yourself and, and the sort of exercise health thing is always about um it has this very sort of protestant work ethic thing um right and, and instead of being about pleasure you know using your body for pleasure it's about right. sort of disciplining and punishing almost um the body right um which i find i find just pulling it into shape yes yeah in the way that that's how we talk about relationships now you know relationships right. marriages are work and they have to be dedicated oh, congratulations and, on your marriage <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you um but but yeah we we sort of with the with the body and with relationships a lot um i think that we've sort of um removed the language or the understanding of pleasure it's some it's an obligation we're supposed to be doing this right. rather than yeah I mean, beauty is interesting because, again, it's mixed, isn't it? Because we do use the, the, the self-pleasuring, pampering language, and yet we also use the bodywork stuff. Um, and, you know, often, again, I think it's the narrative that enables you to um, get towards your more ideal, whether it's like pretending that, that the pampering is really fun, but really you just want to, you know, put on that mask and get rid of some of your wrinkles, or whether it's... Um, or whether the, the the whether it's justifying that well, I'm going out for the evening to do, but I'm, I'll be working. I'll be working. I'll be working on my body, right? So I'm not really going out for the evening kind of thing. So it's kind. Of, I'm I'm quite suspicious of um, narratives that claim either when the result is always the same. <laughs> um. So, you know, there there was a kind of second wave feminist. Uh, uh, rejection of the of beauty standards but they right. did you know as you point out they they really did sort of um a lot of them hit the wrong target by saying you know well men do this to women whereas so right. much of it seems to be you know uh, created and sustained by women themselves um but you know their response of uh, for a lot of them was just you know well okay so i'm not gonna <laughs> do my hair or um, no makeup and, you know, very sort of utilitarian appearance, which to me is not the best response. Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, so you write, especially at the beginning of the book, like that because of where you work in, in a sort of very um, uh, intellectual uh, male-dominated field that beauty then has a sort of different um, um, 
does something different for you yeah. than, than so I think I mean I think that those second wave feminist arguments just they just got I think you're right they just got the target wrong right mm-hmm. they didn't recognize um the extent to which beauty norms a are communal so they didn't recognize that when they threw off their their beauty practices they could do that as part of a community that was doing that you know coming back to what is acceptable within your community and I think they didn't recognize the privilege of their communities to be able to do that and I think then it also descends into women blaming because then what if you don't do it then you have have failed to free yourself so I mean as I said again I just don't think it's false consciousness I just think that they got that wrong um and I think that that's been quite devastating for how we move on to tackle it because so much of the discussion around beauty is about what, what individuals should and shouldn't do. And we blame individuals for that. And I just think that is absolutely the wrong place to start. But it also means that, in fact, these rising demands have happened with so little challenges because if you if you only focus on what individuals do, then you are immediately um, blaming and defending from whatever perspective and you are never challenging, well, why is it that um, the structures have shifted such that it is expected that we all have to do this? But let's look across the piece and count up what, 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 how much time and effort and money is actually going into this and how free are women not to do it. And very often you look and you actually see, this is why I try and step back from, from all those claims. Again, it's so clearly um, state that we do not, we should not, blame individuals for what they do or do not do. To do that, A, it's just practically completely um, ineffective. It doesn't work. It just alienates people. Um, But also, I think it's unethical to do that because it's failing to recognize just how embedded in our senses of self and in our communities and our judgments beauty is. Um, So I think it, it misdiagnoses the problem but then it also comes up with an inappropriate solution. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.